Okay, off we go, off and running on a Labor Day edition of the We Tackle Life podcast. I'm Bruce Hooley, glad to be with you. And boy, do we have a lot of college football to talk about. And isn't that great? College football is back. Love to see the full stadiums. Love to see all the highlights. Thursday, Buckeyes over Minnesota. We'll get to that. And some other games of note around the Big Ten. Georgia Clemson, Alabama-Miami, Notre Dame-Florida State last night. Love college football. Love to see it. And uh, looking forward to Ohio State and Oregon on Saturday. So thanks for joining me. Appreciate you guys subscribing to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spreaker, SoundCloud, any other podcast platform out there. Tell your friends about it. We are now fully immersed in football, and uh, I can't wait for it. NFL season kicks off on Sunday, my birthday. So looking forward to seeing the Browns against the Chiefs, the Bengals against the Vikings. And uh, my daughter is doing something this year that I've never done. She's playing fantasy football, <laughs> which uh, will be interesting. And uh, she's bound and determined to win her league. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, you know how it'll go. If you subscribe to the podcast, you know that Hemisphere Coffee Roasters is the first and most enduring sponsor of the podcast. And you know how it'll go if you start your day with Hemisphere Coffee Roasters coffee. It'll go very well because it tastes phenomenal. And you'll be helping ministry efforts around the world. You'll also get 15% off when you use the promo code WETACKLELIFE. In all caps, so do it today. Order from my friends at Hemisphere, HemisphereCoffeeRoasters.com, promo code we tackle life. In all caps, 15% off. House Blend, Hunter's Blend, Java Blues, Jamaica Me Crazy, all the flavored coffees. Super good coffee, sourced from growers around the world, Indonesia, Thailand, Ethiopia, Nicaragua. You'd never be able to find that coffee, or you'd certainly pay a whole lot more for it. But Hemisphere Coffee Roasters does it right. They further ministry efforts in those countries, and they bring you the hand-picked beans, roasted or whole bean, if you like it that way, light, medium, dark roast, however you like it, K-Cups, however you like it. They've got it, and they'll ship it right to you. Free shipping on orders of $30 or more. HemisphereCoffeeRoasters.com, promo code WETACKLELIFE, in all caps. Let's get to the Buckeyes first and foremost. 45-31 over Minnesota. All right, I was on a plane when this game was being played and uh, did not get to see it live but have since watched it. And uh, it was interesting. I got a partial score update, third quarter. The only score update I got was Minnesota 21, Ohio State 17. And I wasn't the least bit concerned that they'd lose the game. Uh, and I'm not surprised that they pulled away and won the game. I'm not surprised C.J. Stroud had some jitters. Although, I, watching the game back, I didn't think he looked bad in the first half. They just, I don't know why they didn't score more in the first half. Uh, the interception hurt them, obviously. But, you know, they're fine. Uh, Mayan Williams surprised me starting. I didn't expect that. Uh, his speed, I think, is impressive. His physicality is impressive. They've got three really good running backs. Uh, they all kind of look like clones of each other. So they're going to be able to run the ball well. Their offensive line is really good. Didn't have Harry Miller against Minnesota. Presumably they'll have him against Oregon. Uh, boy, the receivers were as advertised. And it's Olave and Garrett Wilson, and then there's a drop-off to the others. Although I'm sure the others will make a great plays from time to time. Uh, didn't see much of Marvin Harrison or Emeka Egbuka. Uh, I think what it seemed to me like Julian Fleming wasn't a factor. Jackson Smith and Jigba had a catch, maybe more. 
But, man, Wilson and Olave are so good and so elusive and are so hard to cover, and that's going to be a problem for everybody. They didn't really use Jeremy Ruckert uh, at all. So they got a lot left in the book for Oregon. They didn't show nearly everything for for Oregon, and uh, Oregon will come in here uh, limping, literally and figuratively, because they really struggled to beat Fresno State. 31-24 needed a late touchdown run from their quarterback, Anthony Brown. And they're limping literally because Kayvon Thibodeau, the one guy who could turn this game, the one guy, probably the best uh, defensive player to play in Ohio Stadium for an opponent since Khalil Mack is Kayvon Thibodeau. He is legit. He's a former five-star. He'll be a top-five pick this year in the draft, I would think. He is a beast. And he got rolled up on in their game against Fresno State. Now, I didn't think his injury looked super serious, so maybe they got him out as a precaution. But an ankle for a pass rusher, a speed rusher like Thibodeau, has to limit him in some way, shape, or form. So that's a big advantage for Ohio State because he is the one guy who could turn the game with strip sacks and just relentless pressure on the quarterback. So I think Oregon, I understand why they're a 13-point underdog in this game given the fact that Thibodeau is limited and given the fact they didn't look very good against Fresno State. Now, they've got some good players. C.J. Verdell's a nice back. Uh, Anthony Brown started for three years at Boston College, so he's seen a lot of snaps. He's never seen anything like, uh, well, he has. He's played at Clemson, so he's seen an atmosphere kind of, sort of, like Ohio State. But uh, Buckeye fans back in the shoe for the first time since 2019 will be chomping at the bit, loving their new team, loving their new stars, Oregon with a noon kick, 9 o'clock Pacific time. It just does not look good for Oregon when you look at all those things. So uh, I'm curious to see what Oregon wears for this one. Uh, Their administration's a little ticked off that they have to play this game at noon. They claim when they drew the contract up that the TV partners would honor it. I think they thought it'd be a night game. It's not. It'll be lights out for Oregon, Uh, literally and figuratively, on Saturday. But let's get back to Minnesota. And Ohio State struggles at Minnesota. Uh, First of all, the good. Pass protection was good. I've talked about the receivers are amazing. The running backs, uh, you know, Travion Henderson taking it to the house on a screenplay. Mayan Williams, that had to be a defensive bust. There's nobody over there on the right side when Mayan Williams goes around the corner untouched for a touchdown. Okay, um... There will be a time this year where calls go against Ohio State. That time was not the other night. Uh, the pass interference penalty in the end zone. Some guys that I know uh, and, and are big Ohio State fans thought that was a bad call. It wasn't. It was a good call. They got away with a pass interference penalty late in the game, and they got away with a big-time targeting call on Lathan Ransom. That would not have been good for their secondary if Lathan Ransom had been sat down against Oregon for the first half, and that was definitely targeting. If that's not targeting, I don't know what is. Which, which, Let me go on a little tangent here about targeting. Get rid of it. Please get rid of it. Like, please get rid of targeting. There was a Penn State kid Saturday thrown out of the game, probably their second-best defensive player, number 13. He's a beast at linebacker. Thrown out of the game because Graham Mertz of Wisconsin is scrambling. If you scramble and... You're a ball carrier. I don't I don't agree with targeting on a non-defensive non-defenseless player. I don't agree with it. Uh if you can see the guy coming, then it's not targeting. I know you're saying, well, they can launch and headlong. Yeah, well, you can move too. 
And if you're coming to the sideline and a guy is trying to get you to the beat you before the marker, then I just don't agree with targeting. There was a Miami kid, uh, Bolden, their second, their uh, safety. Yeah, he, you know, he ducked his head in at the end. It's just that, but was the contact severe? No, it wasn't. He wasn't hurt. The other guy wasn't hurt. They both got up, went on with their lives. Same in the Penn State game. Mertz got up, went on with his life. 13 for Penn State got up, went on with his life. I think for targeting to be called, um, for I mean, first of all, just get rid of it. It's it's unevenly officiated. What, did those guys in the Ohio State game have a dinner reservation to get to? They couldn't call targeting? Josh Proctor got away with one a couple years ago in the Big Ten championship game on the final play against Wisconsin. He just absolutely unloaded on somebody. And they're like, oh, game's over. Let's get out of here, boys. If you're going to target, do it late in the game when the refs like want to get out of there because you'll get away with it nine times out of ten. But if you do it early in the game, oh, then it's a big-time deal. So I hate targeting. I hate the ejection. I hate the uneven way it's officiated. Either it can be reviewed and challenged, or it can be, if it's not raised by officials on the field, if you're really serious about it, then the guys in the booth should be able to buzz down whenever they see it and call it. And and I don't know if they looked at it on Lathan Ransom or not. I don't know how they couldn't have, but they didn't. <laughs> they gave the ball to Ohio State on a fumble, which, yeah, he did fumble, but, man, uh, he got absolutely lit up so I just hate targeting get rid of it if you can't officiate it get rid of it and uh, here's how I would fix it the guys in the booth would have the ability to review at any time because look if you're going to have targeting it's for it's for safety reasons right so safety should be your first and foremost concern so if the guys on the field don't see it well that doesn't mean you you uh, give up on safety the guys in the booth see it or if you know you want to challenge it from the sideline you ought to be able to challenge it you ought to be able to, if it's not under review, like, for instance, they were reviewing the fumble, they could say, oh, by the way, there was targeting. That kid's out. So that's one thing. I would not eject the player, period, for targeting offense number one. I would make his availability contingent upon the guy he hit and his availability. If the guy who is the target E, if he gets hit by a targeter, and the guy gets up and he's fine, then let the kid keep playing. 15-yard penalty, let the kid keep playing. If the offensive player is injured by the targeting, however long he's out of the game, the defensive player has to be out of the game. But if the offensive player is well enough to come back in the game, then let the defensive player come back in the game. Second offense, okay, you want to eject a guy? Eject him. But he's ejected for that game, and then you'd have to figure out, like, are guys going to take a cheap shot, target somebody late in the game if they're not going to be sat out the following week? I think maybe if you commit a targeting call in the last six minutes, then you have to sit the first half of the next week. And I would say if you're targeting for the second time, uh, you know, you get it like two times in two games, then you got to sit a game. Because again, if the safety's the reason, then you got to do that. But I would get rid of the thing. The whole I would totally get rid of it because the officials have proven they cannot call it. The booth guys can't call it. The guys on the field can't call it. It's an unfair disadvantage for the Penn State kid to have to sit this week. It's just I hate that rule. Hate it. 
They've proven they can't officiate it. Okay, uh, more on Ohio State, the defense. Okay, here we go on the defense. Everybody's worried about the defense. Is this going to be the defense of Urban's last year? Maybe. Uh, maybe it will. They gave up 300 passing yards a game last year. Uh, they don't look to be uh, very skilled yet in the secondary. I think they're very long on raw talent. I think it's going to take that raw talent a while to develop. They had a lot of guys injured. They got more guys injured. But here's the thing. Oregon doesn't throw it that well. Everybody else they play doesn't throw it that well. I watched Penn State Saturday against Wisconsin. I'll get to that in a moment. Sean Clifford sure isn't going to light him up throwing the ball. Um, so Michigan's not going to light him up throwing the ball. Yes, yes, I saw Michigan. We'll get to Michigan in a moment. Um, so they're not going to pay a price for it. Now, they might eventually pay a price for it because if you watch Bama Saturday, whew, wow, are they good. And um, so the problem with Ohio State's defense is all over the board. They don't have a great pass rush right now. Their linebackers are, you know, athletic, inexperienced, just okay. They're probably the envy of a lot of teams, but for Ohio State linebackers to the level you'd like for them to be, they're not that. The secondary, we just covered that. So I'm curious how long, maybe it never, before some criticism starts to be directed at Kerry Combs. Uh, Kerry Combs is the defensive coordinator. Everybody loved Kerry Combs as a secondary coach. What's not to love? He was the guy who coached Malik Hooker and Denzel Ward and Eli Apple and Gary and Conley and Marshawn Lattimore. And he's just churning out number one pick after number one pick after number one pick. First round pick, rather. And now Combs is the guy calling the defense. And he's Mr. Rah-Rah, and everybody loved his Rah-Rah and all that. But at some point in time, I just wonder if people are going to be like, hey, like when's our defense going to start playing better? And typically, whenever that happens, criticism of a unit at Ohio State, it's directed at the coordinator, fairly or unfairly. Sometimes it's fair, sometimes it's not fair. Like When it was directed at Jim Bowman, it was never fair because Tress was the offensive coordinator. Uh, when it was directed at who else has taken it in the shorts? Luke Fickle uh, as defensive coordinator. Um yeah, I mean, probably probably fair, I guess. I mean, uh, I, yeah, I suppose. I, although, you know, what do you doubt Luke Fickle? Look at his Cincinnati team right to the top ten. So, um, Greg Schiano. Greg Schiano was the other guy who got all the heat. Eh, I don't know. Greg Schiano didn't forget how to coach defense. I always, I always uh, sort of laugh at people who criticize a coordinator because, first of all, he wouldn't be doing anything the head coach didn't let him do. Second of all, uh, he's been a great coach or he wouldn't be the coach at Ohio State. So uh, I think the coach criticism is a little overblown. Uh, but I just wonder if Kerry Combs will start to get some. Uh, will they Will they give up points this year? Yeah, they'll give up points. But they're going to score so many points, man. I mean, think of let's try to let's try to envision the opponent that could beat Ohio State. Okay, it's going to have to be somebody who can first and foremost score points because Ohio State's going to score points. Could you beat Ohio State scoring less than 20 points? No, no chance. Can you beat Ohio State scoring less than, say, say 26 points or under? Boy, I don't see Ohio State scoring less than 24. So I suppose you could beat them 26 to 24. 
I don't see any way Ohio State doesn't get two touchdowns and maybe 20 would be as few points as I'd see them scoring. Two touchdowns, two field goals. Um, so, I mean, I suppose you could beat them 24-20. More likely for Ohio State to lose a game, I think it, the other team's going to have to score 30. Okay, so who are the teams that could score 30 on them? Well, there's a lot. A lot of teams could score 30 on them. Minnesota scored, what, 20, what do they score? 31. Okay, so if Minnesota can score 31, a lot of teams can score 30 on them. And the problem with a team that gives up a lot of points is even if you have a great offense like Ohio State, you can have a great offense that has a weird day fumbling the ball. Just a weird day. You know, you're always down there to score and you lose three, four turnovers. That could be a problem. So, could Penn State beat them? No. Penn State will not score 30 against Ohio State. Could Wisconsin beat them? No. Who can beat them in the Big Ten? Maryland? Uh, I got to see more of Maryland. No, I don't think Maryland can beat them. Do I think Michigan State could beat them? Well, this Michigan State kid, Kenneth Walker, 264 yards on 23 carries. If you can run it like that, maybe, but Sparty's not going to hold them under 40. So, no, Michigan State can't beat them. Michigan, can Michigan beat them? No. <laughs> no, Michigan cannot beat them. Okay, I watched Michigan, Cade McNamara, J.J. McCarthy, Blake Quorum, Ronnie Bell. I get it. Michigan looked good. They're playing a directional Michigan school. Michigan, I watched Michigan, and if I did not see the winged helmets on Michigan, the size of their guys reminded me of, like, a good power non-power five team really i i'm looking out there at little old blake quorum and little old jj mccarthy and i'm thinking this looks like boise state this looks like boise state to me like they're fast they run around they look good against a mac team but how are they going to look against a real legit big 10 team they're going to look like they've looked the last couple years they're going to struggle to stop teams and to score on teams particularly if Ronnie Bell's any out any definitive period of time. So, no, Michigan does not scare me, and they will not beat Ohio State. And Ohio State will beat them handily, maybe a little bit like Minnesota beat, uh, like Ohio State beat Minnesota. Four, I'd say 45-21 would be my original Ohio State-Michigan prediction. 45-21. Are they better? I don't know. Michigan will lose three games, maybe four, maybe more if they get the wrong guys hurt. So I was not impressed with Michigan. Uh, you will be impressed with Willis Spangler Starling if they are your attorney firm because you will be protected well from all legal actions. You will be counseled smartly on Will's estate planning, probate issues. You will be advised with uh, – expertise of someone who has been through every conceivable workers' comp or employment law case. Willis Spangler Starling's firm is growing, but they are not growing beyond their commitment to you individually to prioritize your case with great acumen and care and sensitivity and personality. Willis Spangler Starling is my attorney firm. I cannot say enough about the partners and the mission of that firm, which is to serve others with their innate interest in the law, which is really a great 
blueprint for anyone in any business. Do what you're interested in, do what you love, and use it to serve others. Willis Spangler Starling is located on Truman Boulevard in Hilliard, which is just north of Mill Run. They're very convenient for anyone in central Ohio. You'll love them. Trust me on that. Go to their website to familiarize yourself with their expertise across the legal spectrum. WillisAttorneys.com, W-I-L-L-I-S, WillisAttorneys.com. All right, let's do the jump around, not like uh, Camp Randall on Saturday, which um, that's a cool tradition in college football. It's unique to Wisconsin. I hope nobody else tries to duplicate it. I've been in Camp Randall when they've done the jump around, and that the, the, the floor literally moves beneath you. I don't know how that can be safe structurally, but, it, uh, but here's the thing. I watched... Penn State, Wisconsin on uh, an airplane back home to Central Ohio on Saturday. I was impressed with Penn State's defense. Watching the game, I will confess to you that I've been conditioned by James Franklin to expect Penn State to find a way to blow that game. And they tried really hard to blow that game. Missing a chippy field goal, missing an extra point, giving Wisconsin repeated chances. Even when Wisconsin's Graham Mertz fumbled away the game to them and kept Wisconsin from scoring by throwing a pick in the last two minutes, Penn State somehow managed to give Wisconsin yet another chance to try to win the game. But they've finally made the plays to close out Wisconsin. So those are two teams that people, you know, think, ah, we might run into Wisconsin in a Big Ten title game. Oh, Penn State, they're always a tough game coming to the horseshoe. Here's why Penn State's not a problem. They are just not the same kind of athletes that Ohio State has across the board. Now, they are really good at some spots on the defense. They are really good at wide receiver with Jahan Dotson. But Sean Clifford is okay as a quarterback. He's not special. If he were special coming out of St. X, he'd be at Ohio State. He's just not special. He's pretty good. He's okay. But he's just okay. So Penn State, they might take Ohio State into the second half. They don't have enough to beat Ohio State. As for Wisconsin... Graham Mertz is a disappointment to Wisconsin fans, I am sure. After he, what he threw for? Five touchdowns in his first game as a true freshman? It was against Illinois, I believe. Um, they've got dudes at wide receiver. Uh, Danny Davis is a dude. Their running back is okay. Transfer from Clemson. Clemson probably like to have him back. Uh, their offensive line is, you know, typical Wisconsin beefy. Um, defense, give up a lot of yards. But, you know, bend but don't break. Jim Leonard's a nice coordinator. Wisconsin, they're a 10-3 football team. Maybe maybe 9-4. So, no, Wisconsin's not going to be an impediment to Ohio State in the Big Ten title game. Uh, as for another game Saturday, I think there is a team in the Big Ten that could possibly give Ohio State trouble. Not until December when they meet in Indy. But the Iowa Hawkeyes are a team that bears watching because they absolutely dismantled Indiana. If you watched that, did that not feel like the Ohio State game out there? Were they like, boom, we're on Indiana, pick six, boom, on Indiana again? Like, it was 14 to nothing before you could blink your eyes, before you got back to the couch after the kickoff. So, <laughs> Iowa looked really good. Now, they could just absolutely, you know, crap the bed this week against Iowa State which they have been known to do before. Kirk Ferentz has a problem uh, in that Iowa State game. Matt Campbell and Iowa State will ugly that game up, and that'll be a big game. Uh, the Cyhawk Trophy 
Cyclones and Hawkeyes. But Iowa looks pretty good. I, they would they would make me a little nervous because they don't give up a lot of points. I think they've held teams to 24 or under for a long, long, long period of time. Iowa's the team in the Big Ten to keep your eye on. They're a team that uh, looks fairly good to me. Uh, elsewhere around the college football world, last night, Notre Dame weathers the storm and wins against Florida State, even though the story of the game, well, there are two stories of the game, both quarterbacks. Number one, Jack Cohn, the former Wisconsin quarterback, is now at Notre Dame, and Jack Cohn threw for well over 300 yards and looked really good for Notre Dame. Got him in, uh, got him down the field at the end, uh, almost in regulation to attempt a game-winning field goal. Then Florida State, Florida State, <laughs> this is when you get too smart for yourself. And I get it. Like Mackenzie Milton, the, the kid from UCF who hasn't played in two years, a thousand days since Mackenzie Milton's been out there. Gruesome knee injury. I remember when it happened. Oh, my goodness. It was so gruesome. Vascular damage, a lot like the Alex Smith injury in the NFL. Mackenzie Milton transfers from Central Florida to Florida State, and he comes off the bench last night, and he leads Florida State back, and he gets him into overtime against Notre Dame. And then in the overtime, he retreated. They're in field goal range. He retreats. He goes to pump fake, and the ball comes out of his hand. And I thought at the time, that's an incompletion, not a fumble. He recovered it, but the field goal was going to be 50 yards. So they line up, and they actually snap the ball on the field goal, and the Florida State kid hits it, a 50-yarder. His career long was 43 yards. He hits the field goal. But Florida State had called timeout to challenge the non-incomplete pass ruling. Well, they won the challenge, and I said, kid's going to yank this field goal. Sure enough, he did. He yanked it left, not wide right. Florida State has a history of that. Just ask a Hurricane fan. But he yanks it left, and then Notre Dame comes down, and they kick the field goal at the end. I thought Florida State was going to block that Notre Dame field goal, but he squeezed it through a massive arms, and Notre Dame wins. Okay, so Mackenzie Milton, that was a great story. He looked good. He'll probably be Florida State's quarterback going forward. If you can't root for Mackenzie Milton, your heart is made of stone. And Notre Dame with Jack Cohn, they got Michael Mayer, Mayer at tight end. He's nice. They got their running back back, second-team All-American last year. Uh, Notre Dame doesn't look to me like a team that can go undefeated, but they looked okay. Uh, they got a really good safety, number 14. Okay, Brian Kelly after the game. Boy, cancel culture. What is cancel culture not consuming enough people stupidly that it has to go after Brian Kelly for a for a for a clumsy use of the old John McKay joke? What do you think of your team's execution? I'm in favor of it. Brian Kelly said something about our execution wasn't very good. Maybe our whole team needs to be executed. And of course, Twitter, where everybody's stupid. Twitter blows up with, oh, Brian Kelly. Good for Brian Kelly. Never apologize. Never apologize to the cancel culture mob. Brian Kelly after the game is like, really? You're coming after me on that? Like it was it was a, 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 an attempt at humor. You're going to come after me on that? Bring it. So Notre Dame, don't reprimand Brian Kelly. Ignore the idiots. And I have no love for Notre Dame, but I also don't have any love for cancel culture, and that's just stupid, trying to cancel Brian Kelly for making the old John McKay joke. Not as well as John McKay, I might add. All right, have I hit all the college? No, I haven't hit all the college football. we got Georgia Clemson and Alabama-Miami. First, let me remind you that auiinfo.com is a loyal sponsor of the We Tackle Life podcast, and if you're in business, it's a very challenging time. 
You've got state compliance stuff. You've got health insurance benefits escalating. You've got all this stuff going on, and you wish you had somebody who could take the stuff off your plate that you hate researching because it's just so frustrating and so time-consuming and you never get to it and the deadline comes to renew your benefits and you're like, okay, I'll renew them again. Next year, I promise I'll get to it. No, you'll never get to it. AUIinfo.com can spare you that headache of wondering whether you're spending too much for too little. Go to their website and type your questions into the chat about the benefits you offer your employees and whether you can get more for what you're paying and they will know the answer. Boom, quick, and free. Yeah, they don't charge you, so please use them. AUIinfo.com. You offer health. Maybe you'd like to offer life and disability and dental and vision. Or you're offering all that, and you realize, man, I'm spending a ton, but I don't know. Could I do better? Who would know? AUIinfo.com would know. That's the website. AUIinfo.com. Check it out. They're a small business. They understand small businesses. If you have two employees up to 50, they can help you get you in the right plan for the right money. AUIinfo.com. And they also have a free dedicated HR specialist. You can't afford HR training. They've got 300 HR modules. That's free to you too. So great resource. They're paid by the insurance companies that you choose from the options they present to you. AUIinfo.com. All right, to Clemson and Georgia. All right, I watched the first half of this. Man, was that ugly offensive football or great defensive football. It was both. I read a story on CBS Sports after the game that, oh, Clemson's out of the national championship race. Boy, their offense looks terrible. Well, Georgia's offense didn't score either. (laughs) Score touchdown. And I have a lot more faith. Which league would you like to try to win with a mediocre offense? SEC or ACC? Well, neither one would be the answer. But ACC would be easier, particularly when you have a defense like Clemson's. Do you think there's more upside with JT Daniels and Georgia or more upside with DJ Uyunglele and Justin Ross and Nagata and some of the other studs that Clemson has? I'd say Clemson. Would you rather roll with Kirby Smart or would you rather roll with Dabo Sweeney? I'd rather roll with Dabo guy who's got two national titles. So I don't at all think Clemson's in a dire situation because if they win the ACC, they'll be in, and I think they will win the ACC. And I don't believe that JT Daniels and Georgia's offense is good enough to beat Alabama, not after what I saw at Alabama on Saturday. So Georgia's defense is good. They might be the class of the East. Florida will have something to say about that. But Right now, uh, I'm kind of surprised Clemson didn't score, but I don't think Clemson's out of anything losing to Georgia in week one. Conversely, if I'm Georgia, I'm like, how are we going to score in the SEC? Because Clemson's not going to see another defense like Georgia's, but Georgia is probably going to see at least one more defense like Clemson's, and that defense is Alabama's in the SEC title game if Georgia gets there. Because, man, did Bama look good on defense. Now, I know Miami's not what Miami used to be. But Miami, that's not like, you know, that's not like Dadeland Community College that Alabama's playing. That's a pretty good Miami team with five stars and De'Eric King at quarterback. And they got dudes on Miami. And Alabama put the heat on them in the pocket. And, boy, do they have dudes on defense. They look bigger, faster, nastier. That was like a nightmare reincarnation of what Bama's defense did to Ohio State in the national title game. 
Now, I buried the lead because where Bama's really impressive is on offense. I don't expect Bama to go undefeated. As good as they looked on Saturday, that's just too tough of a league. Bryce Young is really good, really poised at quarterback for Bama. They've got a couple running backs. Jamison Williams, the Ohio State transfer, has really helped Bama at wide receiver. John Mechie's a really good receiver. They have two tight ends, Jaleel Billingsley and then the other kid, Latu, who had two touchdown catches on Saturday. Their offensive line is really good, even though they only have one starter back. So I thought Bama was, to me, the most impressive teams of the weekend. Bama, Ohio State, and that's it. That's it, because Oklahoma wasn't impressive. Oregon wasn't impressive. Clemson wasn't impressive. Georgia was impressive, but defensively only. So I really, coming out of this, you know, Ohio State's defense is suspect, and there will be offenses that will really be able to put up points on Ohio State. They'll have to win a shootout or two. They get to the playoff, they'll have to win two shootouts. Unless their defense gets appreciably better, their pass rush has got to get better. Their pass rush, man, pass rush is not great. But uh, – I wouldn't write off Clemson, and what I think Clemson needs to do is they need to run the quarterback more. He's a big, strong dude, and they ran Trevor Lawrence, and they didn't look like they wanted to run him at all. Now, maybe he's not a runner, but he's got to become somewhat of a runner. My guess is Clemson at tailback will uh, use that that Will Shipley kid more, and uh, they'll start figuring out how to – when you play teams that aren't Georgia, you'll all of a sudden things will start to work that didn't work before. So they've got a wideout that got injured on Saturday. He'll be out for about half a season. But Clemson will be fine, and uh, Bama is already, like, looks really good. So uh, with Bill O'Brien stepping in there for Sarkeesian, I don't think they'll miss a beat. They've got – the thing that I would look for from Bama is that that Billingsley kid who was their tight end last year is the, out of favor with Saban right now, but you know he's coming back. And Bill O'Brien – who the former Penn State coach, the former Houston Texans coach, is also the former New England Patriots offensive coordinator when the New England Patriots were just annihilating people with Aaron Hernandez and Rob Gronkowski. If there's anybody who knows how to put in two tight end concepts and work tight ends down the field, it's Bill O'Brien. So I would watch out for Bama playing those two tight ends together to A, help their running game, and B, to offset a little bit, well, more than a little bit, because when you lose Jalen Waddell and Devontae Smith, you've lost a lot at wide receiver. But they're still pretty good at wide receiver, although they can't afford any injuries. Uh, they're not deep enough there. Ohio State could f- afford like <laughs> a bunch of injuries at wide receiver and probably wouldn't uh, be hurt too bad, although you lose Olave or you lose Garrett Wilson, that's losing a lot. All right, so there is my college football breakdown. The podcast is getting a little bit prolonged. Um, we will get to uh, the NFL on Wednesday, Browns and Bengals, Browns against the Chiefs. It's not going to be the end of the world if they lose that game. I kind of got a feeling they might win that game, actually. And Bengals against the Vikings. I, I went out on a limb last year and picked the Bengals to win their opener, and they did not, but they came close against the Chargers. Um, I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to pick the Bengals against Rick Spielman's Minnesota Vikings. Uh, that's, uh, that's just my uh, inclination at this point in time. All right. Now, 
to the faith portion of the podcast. Uh, I have been spending my mornings uh, reading my Proverbs chapter, which I do every day corresponding to the date of the month. But I also have, in the aftermath of that, have been leafing through some of the um, prophets and minor prophets in the Old Testament, and also reading some of prophecy in Ezekiel and in Daniel. And then you get into, you know, books like Obadiah and Zechariah and Haggai and all this kind of stuff, and you're like, what is this stuff? And it's just basically like God really uh, laying out for the um, Jewish people how displeased he is with them and their disobedience. And it's not very hard right now to look at the world that we live in and understand that God would not be thrilled with the um, immorality, decadence, um, elevation of self to God in our culture. So I've touched on that before in previous podcasts and uh, have mentioned that, you know, look, when you hold your Bible up and you look at it, uh, two-thirds of it's the Old Testament, and a third of it, maybe not even a third of it, is the New Testament. It's probably more like a fourth of it. And that's not an accident, folks. Like, there's a reason why the Old Testament is much fatter than the New Testament. The New Testament's awesome. It's got the gospel in it. It's got all of Paul's letters. It's got Revelation, which gives you, you know, a window into the future. But don't ignore the Old Testament. It's in there for a reason, and uh, it certainly does expose to you the mind of God, the faithfulness of God, and the certainty of how things are going to end. But that said, what I wanted to talk about today is that we had a video yesterday. Our pastor does a good job of augmenting his sermons with videos, and uh, he played a video yesterday that was, I mean, it was really, really <laughs> uh, real and powerful and uncomfortable. It was a video of a pastor and his wife. They looked to me like they were in their, eh, I'm going to say 40s. And it was the story of the pastor, the man, uh, bringing into their home a young man who he was mentoring. And I don't know if the young man he was mentoring was a young pastor or was just a young man. I forget. But at any rate, he brought this young man into their home, and he stayed in their home. He lived in their home. So they were practicing the gift of hospitality. And in the course of this young man being in the home, the wife uh, became somewhat taken by him and ended up sleeping with him ended up committing adultery with him, and ended up getting pregnant by him. And she talked about having to confess this sin to her husband. And it was powerful and uncomfortable to watch them relate this. Well, she ends up having the baby, because of course they're not going to abort the baby. That would make one sin worse. So they have the baby, and the pastor, the man who was cheated on, asks his wife if he can name the child, and he names it after himself, 
because he said he wanted to he wanted that child to know that he accepted him fully as his son even though he wasn't his biological son and i'm watching this and i'm like wow you talk about grace you talk about forgiveness you talk about putting your faith into action it was powerful and um yeah, I'll confess, I had a little hard time dealing with the wife because I thought, what's wrong with you? I mean, what in the world is wrong with you that you would do that to your husband? So I tell you guys all the time that I read a chapter of Proverbs every day that corresponds to the date of the month. So uh, we're right here on the weekend in September, uh, September 5 and 6, and when you read chapter 5 of Proverbs and chapter 6 of Proverbs, well, there's a fair amount in there about adultery and about how it's not something God looks the other way on. Uh, The entire chapter of Proverbs 5 is about calling down judgment on someone who commits adultery and how unwise that is to live your life that way and practice that that way. And then in chapter 6 of Proverbs, this verse I underlined a long time ago, can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. Later on in that chapter, he says, a man who commits adultery lacks judgment. Whoever does so destroys himself. Blows and disgrace are his lot, and his shame will never be wiped away, for jealousy arouses a husband's fury, fury, and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. He will not accept any compensation. He will refuse the bribe, however great it is. So, you know, I'm, I'm reading this today, and I'm thinking, the great thing about a podcast is that you can listen to it in privacy. Chris and I structured the uh, podcast as we did with the faith portion at the end. So those of you who have an interest in listening to it can listen to it. And, you know, you don't have to be, quote-unquote, embarrassed. You're not going into a strange church. You're not having a bunch of people come up to you and meet you and make you uncomfortable. That's the beauty of the podcast. That's the beauty of the faith portion of the podcast is that you can do it, you and God, alone. Let it work on your heart. Hopefully, I'm relaying a message that God wants you to hear. So, I'll just say, if you're engaged in uh, cheating on your wife, or if you're a woman and you're cheating on your husband, or if you're progressing down that road, you know, you're intrigued by somebody, you think it's harmless, you're lying to yourself, telling you it's harmless, you're, but you do what the woman in this video did, you confess that, you know, every time I was going to see that guy, I made sure I had nice clothes on. I made sure I was made up. I got excited when, you know, we'd be around. He made me laugh. I made him laugh. He responded to me in a way my husband didn't. You know how this starts, right? It doesn't start like you thinking, ah, I'm going to sleep with, I'm going to sleep around on my wife. No, it's like, oh, I think I'm intrigued by this person. I look forward to seeing that. That's a danger sign, man. You got to pay attention to that. Okay. So if that's you, stop it. Okay, stop it. But let me say this. If you've done it, 
There is also forgiveness and restoration. You don't have to beat yourself up on it forever, because that's what Satan will do to you. He will use, and he does use, all of our failures to beat us up and make us think we're unworthy of God's love. You're not unworthy of God's love, no matter what you've done. God sent his son, his son, to die for you. His son was innocent of any sin, of any wrongdoing. So for him to hang on the cross and absorb our sins and offer us forgiveness, he did it to offer forgiveness for anything you've done. You cannot out the grace of God. And I want to point out a powerful proof of that in the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew starts his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus, proving that Jesus came from the line of David and that he was a son of Abraham. Okay? And he goes through the whole thing. Matthew chapter 1, verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father. And he goes on and on and on and on. Okay? So there's like 30, 30 generations here, I think, or maybe more, before you get to Jesus being born from the line of David. In the midst of the genealogy of Jesus are two furtherances of Jesus's line that stem from marital unfaithfulness. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Okay, who was Rahab? Rahab was a prostitute. Rahab was a prostitute who treated well some spies from Israel, Jewish spies, who went up to scout whether or not they could win a battle, and she was a prostitute. Okay, so she's not like pure as the driven snow. She's a prostitute. And God included her as the mother of one of the patriarchs of Jesus. And the other example of someone who was promiscuous, maritally unfaithful, David, King David, was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, who had been Uriah's wife. Now, if you know anything about David and Bathsheba and Uriah, you know that David was walking around on his roof when he should have been off to war, and he looked over and he saw Bathsheba taking a bath on the roof of her place, which, why are you doing that unless you want to be seen? And David sent to the front and had her husband Uriah come back home thinking he could trick Uriah into sleeping with his wife so that the baby that she was pregnant with would be presumed to be Uriah's baby, not David's baby. Uriah wouldn't go home because he was like, no, I can't go. My, my boys are back on the battlefront. How could I come home and sleep with my wife when my boys are back on the battlefront? So David like basically put him on the front lines when he went back to battle and had him killed. So David was an accessory to that murder. So David, Solomon was David's son 
Solomon was not that baby because that baby died, but Solomon was later born to the marriage of David and Bathsheba, which their relationship stemmed from adultery. So what's my point in bringing all that up? Adultery is awful. It's evil. There's a lot of chapters devoted to, to it in the Bible. It hurts the ones you love the most. It's a sin against your own body. It's an abomination to God. Stop it. Don't do it. If you're engaged in a path that'll take you there, get off that path because it'll destroy you. It'll destroy you. It's not just what you're doing to your wife or what you're doing to your husband. It's what you're doing to you. Secondly, if you've done it, now don't use this as a license to do it, but if you've done it, remember that God can forgive anything because if Rahab is in the genealogical line of Jesus, if Bathsheba is in the genealogical line of Jesus, and she was because she was the mother of Solomon, then take that as proof that you can be forgiven for whatever you have done. And that's a powerful thing to remember because Satan loves to tell us, you're not good enough, you're not good enough, you're not good enough, you've done this, you've done this, you've done this. And for a lot of my life, that worked on me because I was like, man, I know I'm not good enough. I could never be forgiven. But when you really start to comprehend and fully understand what Jesus did for you at the cross, you understand that when Satan tells you, hey, Bruce, you're not good enough. The only answer to shut him up is, you're right, I'm not. But Jesus was good enough, so I don't have to be because he did it for me. And he did it for you too. So keep that in mind as you head into your week, into the fall, into the college football season, and I'll be back Wednesday to talk to you again here on the We Tackle Life podcast. Review us on iTunes if you would. Send us an email, wetacklelife at gmail.com. Wetacklelife at gmail.com.